Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Risha Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by three doctors who are involved in a new device that allows you to ventilate two patients simultaneously with one ventilator. It's something that's crucial in the middle of COVID-19 because uh, there's such a crisis and it's going to be very important in the years to come. Uh, they are Dr. Marjorie Jenkins, uh, Chief Academic Officer for Prisma Health and Dean of the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Greenville. Dr. Peter Tuckmeyer, Chair of the Department of Medicine at Prisma Health Upstate, and Dr. Sarah Ferris, who's an Assistant Clinical Professor of Emergency Medicine at Prisma Health and Assistant Medical Director of the Greenville Healthcare Simulation Center. Thank you so much for being with us today. So Sarah, let me start with you. How did you come up with the idea for the device? Like a lot of physicians, especially I'm an emergency physician and was trying to mentally prepare for the patient load we'd be getting and what kind of management would be required um, and had been reading about what was going on in the world. Uh, And there was some conversation in some of my doctor groups about um, ventilator sharing, going back to looking at the paper that was published after the Las Vegas shooting, uh, reporting how they were able to share ventilators among four patients in an acute setting. Uh, by putting together the T connector pieces. And while I certainly was hoping that would never be necessary, seeing how Italy was forced to make choices about who was able to get a ventilator just due to lack of the equipment available, it occurred to me that we had probably a couple weeks before it hit hard in the US and it might be good to use that time to see if we could come up with a ventilator splitter that would be pretty easy to use and minimize the dead space and wouldn't require part of the ventilator circuit that was being used um, to ventilate patients. And so I saw my first COVID patient on a Friday at the beginning of March. She was asymptomatic and I realized that it was here and uh, went home that night from my shift and told my husband, who's a mechanical engineer, that I thought we should try to make a ventilator splitter on our 3D printer. And, uh, and that was how we got started. That sounds amazing. So you obviously have the medical background. Your partner brings in the engineering piece. You have a 3D printer at home. It sounds like the perfect storm for coming up with a solution. How does it work? Do you mind just explaining to folks who may not know too much about it? And also, how did you go from the idea to the prototype? It's just basically a very small Y connector that meets the ISO standards for the connector to the ventilator using the normal ventilatory uh, inflow and outflow attachments versus having to go through the back of the vent and contaminate it. And so you can use HEPA filters with it. And so it just hooks into the ventilator. You can put a HEPA filter on each side, and then you can attach the two patients um, to the Y connector for the outflow from the vent and the inflow into the vent. And then it wasn't our intention, but you can actually also add a Y connector to each Y and go up to four patients, um, which I would not recommend. Certainly not with a complicated COVID patient, but that was part of the design also. And it's very small, so it minimizes dead space. So you mentioned the HEPA filter. Just walk me through the exact reason for the filter, why it's there. So there's a, the HEPA filter uh, filters out particles and um, viruses and bacteria. And so that prevents patients from contaminating each other. And so you can put a HEPA filter on each side and then it will um, make sure that any bacteria or viruses from one patient don't cross over into the other patient. It also prevents the ventilator itself from becoming contaminated so that you wouldn't have to take it apart and refurbish it to clean everything out to prevent uh, contaminating the next patient you use with it. Now, Peter, you helped bring everyone together to make this project happen. Is it being used for patients right now? Fortunately, no. 
and unfortunately no also because we haven't had a chance to learn how it actually works in a human. We've tried it in mannequins in our simulation laboratory. That was where Sarah is one of our directors of the sim labs and works with one of my pulmonologists, Dr. Stenbit. And they actually came to me with the idea and I did the, um, this sounds like it's got tremendous promise and, and who else needs to be on the team and called our new dean, Marjorie Jenkins, who has her prior FDA experience, and I'll let her relay some of that timeline um, and the relationship with the FDA that made this really uh, go quick. I think the other part of it, and a lot of this came from Sarah Ferris's husband, Ryan, who had connections in the engineering world and started to bring a number of tremendous forces to play. They brought in, and these are not the small names of the world. They brought in Hewlett Packard. Uh, we brought in Clemson University. We brought in the University of South Carolina. We brought in time from a General Electric engineer. All those folks were at the table helping us get the first ones out into the field for potential clinical use. Then the last connection uh, was during our interviews about the release of the device. I got an email from Cynthia Starr at Johnson & Johnson in charge of their uh, technology transfer. And we talked on a Friday afternoon. So the, the timeline is Friday, I learn about it. Tuesday, we have FDA approval. Wednesday, we do a press release. The following Friday, uh, that Friday, I talked to Johnson & Johnson. And a week after that, Johnson & Johnson, Ethicon has agreed to produce, distribute, and monitor the device in the U.S. Today we have, I believe it's more than 3,000 devices distributed and tens of thousands on a shelf waiting, ready to go if somebody should need them. Um, it's just been a tremendous uh, partnership with everybody giving. And the most important part of it was a requirement up front from the Ferris's and from all of us was that it's done at no cost. This is free to hospitals and health systems in the U.S. So Marjorie, as a former employee of the FDA, do you mind just telling us about how the usual process works, how long it takes, and how you're able to turn this around in just a few days? Well, uh, so I was not employed by the FDA. I was actually uh, leased from my university on a professional agreement with the FDA that was to be one year, but it expanded into four years at the Office of the Commissioner, Office of Women's Health. So I worked with the Center for Devices and Radiological Health. I worked with the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, really across the agency. So was familiar with device approval, um, 510K processes, uh, had worked on uh, various projects in that space. And uh, Peter did ask, could I help navigate through the FDA EUA? So people may uh, know that the FDA has to be given approval to, uh, by the HHS Secretary Azar to give emergency use authorization to devices, drugs, diagnostics during an emergency. So they were given that, but not given that for ventilators or ventilator parts until March 24. So our call to them, uh, I believe was on the, on March 20th. I spoke with the director that evening, Jeff Sheeran, and his team and our team had a meeting the next day. And we uh, rapidly stood up a project team of over 40 engineers and critical care clinicians who met 
via Zoom uh, most of Sunday and Sunday evening from U University of South Carolina, Clemson University, Prisma Health. And uh, we came up with the proposal, submitted it, and then had the EUA on Tuesday. So very quickly, obviously devices can take years, if not more, to come through to uh, use and day-to-day -day operations. But what this does is it gave us emergency use during the pandemic. So when the pandemic goes away, our authorization goes away. If we wanted to move toward, as Dr. Tokmeyer said, uh, where you could have these just in case on your shelf, that would be uh, the process that you would go to, to and through for device approval. So I will say that, you know, getting, uh, just as Peter was telling the human story, right, of this, so uh, Dr. Ferris and her husband coming together to design it. My husband's a Salesforce consultant and the Salesforce consulting firm. He actually elevated this on Saturday evening to Benioff through one of their vice presidents. And we were given uh, free licenses from Salesforce. So they were very generous, which is now supporting this entire national distribution. So we've distributed over 2,700 devices to uh, 95 locations and are still taking uh, requests for orders. And as Peter said, we have a generous contribution from the Sargent Foundation to help, and here in Greenville to help us do this at no cost. And J&J &J Ethicon has just been an amazing partner. Uh, just to have their name so well-known in the space, working with their team. I hope that their CEO doesn't expect them to turn around a device in a week. <laughs> I hope that for them. But they, they've just been amazing partners. You set a high bar. I'm curious, you know, uh, you've had to work through a lot of different private organizations and public organizations like the FDA. How does that private-public partnership work? And what are some of the challenges that our average listener may not be aware of? Well, I think for this one, um, and Dr. Tokmeyer, Peter, you will probably want to speak to this related to Prisma Health as a not-for-profit large healthcare organization. Uh, you know, we're two-thirds of South Carolina coverage and from that healthcare organization. I also wear the hat of the chief academic officer at Prisma Health. And then interfacing that with J&J &J to get that agreement for distribution. And also the FDA, once they give you emergency use authorization, you are required to report adverse events, clinical data back to the FDA. You're required to destroy all of the devices after the pandemic is over send out a notice that everyone destroys and not utilize these. But um, at the end of the day, the FDA has just been so responsive. I mean, we've had several conference calls with them, asking them, especially as J&J &J came on board, very well-known entity to FDA. They were very pleased that we had partnered with J&J &J Ethicon to really produce high-quality devices and tracking. So it was just a great partnership. I didn't really see a lot of hurdles Peter, do you want to, it was a lot of hurdles in that, you know, the legal people had to come together, uh, but they also just worked day and night to get this done. Yeah, it, it truly was uh, an amazing partnership. Uh, bringing a device to uh, an FDA approval and clinical utilization can take years and getting it through our health system, you know, it was three days of phone calls and everybody saying yes. It couldn't have been a better partnership. I think it was all because there was one common good in mind, and that was making sure that we offer to take the best care of our patients. 
something that every health system aspires to, something that we certainly aspire to at Prisma Health. Uh, so the ability to get our CEO on board, our legal team on board, our Washington lawyers on board with regard to trademarks and patents and contracts with large companies and the ability of everyone to come to the table so quickly and get it done was phenomenal. And Rishi, I'll, I'll say when we got our first shipment of the devices, they, they did send some to us uh, to have on hand. It was extremely well done and in, in a very short amount of time. So very, very good job working with J&J. So Sarah, I have a question specifically for you as a physician that was involved from the very ideation of this piece. Uh, there are societies that have come out and said, uh, for various reasons, uh, including ethical ones, that vending uh, with a split or a splitter is not a good idea. And those societies have enumerated the reasons for that. Obviously, COVID-19 is a very unique situation. There are a lot of trade-offs here. I'd love to get your perspective on those views as a frontline healthcare provider. I don't think there's as much divide, perhaps, as one might assume from reading those papers, because, I mean, I think we all agree that the ideal is that any patient who needs a ventilator has their own ventilator. Um, and I think that's that's the best way to manage a patient. If there was also a paper published out of uh, Columbia Presbyterian on their protocol for splitting vents, and they did a beautiful, elegant job writing out that protocol. I was really, really impressed with it. I think if you have to do it, that's the way to do it. Uh, but ideally, I would be thrilled if it was never needed, you know, and if you've got the ventilators, then I don't think you should split them for fun. But if you are at a point where you have patients that may pair well, and it's not something where you can just put two people on, I mean, they have to match pretty well in their compliance and um, their lung volume and so forth. It, it's a pretty careful process to see if you've got people who match well enough to pair, then if that's your best option, that's your best option. It's good to have it available. But in a perfect world, we would have all the ventilators we needed and no epidemic. And, you know, we could all go about our work. And Rishi, I'll just share that if you go through an ethics exercise of principalism, which is applying the ethics principles across the decision and looking at paternalism, beneficence, non-malfeasance, when you do that within the auspices of, the, of COVID and the fact that we know that the uh, COVID-19-induced acute respiratory distress syndrome is uniformly fatal without ventilatory support. So when you look at that and trying to keep your healthcare providers who are fighting, some have lost their lives on the front line uh, from having to make that decision not to ventilate somebody and allow them to die what is a very gruesome death, actually. Uh, I think part of how we proceeded with this, and I did go through this exercise for myself because I do it for many hard uh, decisions, and it is very uh, ethics support uh, utilizing this if it is your last option. So playing off of that, I'm just curious for any one of you that might have an answer to this, uh, are there any changes in hospital protocols that you've seen? For example, if I'm in the ICU and I expect a surge, Maybe I start coordinating with local hospitals and ICUs to start transferring patients. Uh, but if I have uh, this extra tool in my toolbox, uh, maybe I wouldn't uh, need to do that. Maybe I would opt to just use a splitter instead. I'm curious, have any of you heard of anything on the ground in the way of changes in protocols? Um, so why don't I try to take that one on for you? As Dr. Ferris mentioned, um, the the important part of this is to try to get a patient to their own ventilator um, with the, in the right care setting. 
So getting them to uh, a single ventilator with the right level of uh, critical care support is crucial to um, increasing their chances for survival. If that means we transfer the patient to a different health facility in order to get that, or if we bring the ventilator to where the patient is, uh, whatever we need to do to do that would be a first step. The intent of this device is, is not to limit the potential for a patient to get their own ventilator. Um, it's to when you are completely out of ventilators and have no choices, and we get into that ethics decision that Dr. Jenkins was working through, um, that we do have an option available uh, at that point. And, and we don't have to make those very hard decisions about rationing medical resources um, that we're all trained to make. Um, and they're the hardest medical decisions that we will ever make. Uh, so it, it was really developed out of that space of making sure that we never had to make a decision that we don't wanna make. And at the same time, let's find ways to get our patients to single ventilators, however we best do that with our healthcare systems today. I'll just share with your audience that uh, just a few short days, uh, less than a week, I think, after the uh, consensus statement against vent sharing, HHS put out a protocol for vent optimization. And they did use the Columbia Presbyterian protocol, which is the protocol that's in our IFU, Instructions for Youth, for the VESPER device. So I think that we, everyone wanted to be prepared, but I also want to share that we have not heard of youth, which means, as you heard uh, Governor Cuomo say, that they did not maximize out in even in uh, New York State. And so that's the good news, right, of not utilizing uh, the VESPER device. But now the worry is, and what we're hearing from people ordering the device over the past week, is that we have some of our uh, the second wave, so to speak, that might hit our rural areas and hospitals with one ventilator that they might not use very often? And how are they going to handle that? So we've gotten a lot of uh, more recent queries from our rural areas asking for the device. Thank you so much for bringing up the HHS guidelines. I actually read through them really carefully and I was super impressed. I thought they were very well thought through. I'm curious, in terms of infrequent bad outcomes, you know, like we're talking about the second wave that might come, other infrequent bad outcomes like fires and earthquakes, we prepare for them, we, we train for them. Is there any training around splitting of ventilators that um, are, are making their way into guidelines at hospitals? Uh, for example, cohorting patients, you know, the importance of matching lung physiologies when possible. I've seen updates also on the technology that shows you can actually have patients with different lung physiology ventilated with a split ventilator. I'm just curious, what sort of training is out there now for folks and is it being practiced? I'm not aware of any like online modules or training that's available. When we were testing our device, we were in the Greenville Healthcare Simulation Center using our um, SimMan 3Gs and uh, the artificial test lungs that we use to test the vents in the ICU. Uh, but as far as an educational protocol to prepare medical staff, I think that's a great thought and I don't know that it exists beyond um, papers. You know, I'll share with you right now, we're an online education group and we actually have ventilator training uh, because we know that now there are people maybe in nephrology that have to go across and manage vents and they maybe, maybe haven't done that in a long, long time. Uh, so we're doing that training at the moment. That might be great uh, follow-up for us to collaborate on. Yeah, absolutely.
So any other final thoughts? I know you touched on the second wave. I'd love to maybe kind of get everyone's opinion on this question. When would we or should we expect a second wave? And obviously right now, a big part of the conversation is about isolating uh, at home and uh, in states trying to open up. Uh, I'd love to get thoughts. I am assuming there's going to be a second wave uh, and potentially worse if people are in close quarters, especially in the wintertime. And part of it, honestly, is I think I still have a little PTSD from uh, the H1N1 epidemic uh, back in 2009, 2010. That was my first winter out as an attending and I had a baby. And then, uh, so we had a little bit of H1N1 and kind of got a sense of it. And then that next winter, it was terrible with myocarditis. And I was um, at a tertiary care center. We had ECMO machines and created a mobile ECMO unit to go get folks who were on ECMO from the community and bring them into our units. And so I'm like extremely... uh, mentally preparing myself for there being a second wave. Hopefully it's not as overwhelming as it may be. I don't know that anyone can really predict accurately when it's going to be coming, if it's going to be kind of a fall or winter thing. Um, As far as states opening back up again, again, I don't know if there's a great answer about how to do this. I have been very pleasantly surprised, at least in our region, how well the social distancing has worked. Uh, and how we've had enough uh, personal protective equipment for our hospital workers and had enough ventilators at all times. And I've just been really grateful for that. And so I would uh, just encourage proceeding with an abundance of caution and trying to make careful fact-based, data-based decisions. Peter, your thoughts? Yep. Uh, Couldn't agree with her more. Um, I believe there will be a second wave. I'm kind of concerned about the third wave. Uh, So second wave to me may actually be coming within the next a couple of weeks to months um, as we start to open up a little bit. Uh, it may not be a, a big wave, but it's going to be a, there'll be a bump on the curve uh, as we start to open up and people start to get outside. And then this fall and winter, we're going to be fully geared up, ready to go, know where the manuals are that created everything that we were ready to do with this wave. Unfortunately, didn't have to do in the state of South Carolina. Um, That also tells me that there's probably a large number of our patients who might not have had an exposure and don't have immunity uh, so that we can't have enough testing fast enough uh, to to help us understand who's immune, who's not, and does immunity confer safeness from a second infection um, or not. Uh, It's a as we've seen, it's it, the disease presents very differently in individuals, and we don't know why. You know, why does the 28-year-old end up on a ventilator, uh, and the 70-year-old um, have a mild flu-like illness, and vice versa? So there's a lot more to learn about COVID-19. Well, I I think the more we've learned and had granular state data and local data that we feed into national models, we've become to get more realistic outputs and uh, predictions. So we started out with 100 to a quarter million Americans dying from this for the first wave. We're down to about 60 to 65,000. Invariably, people are suffering also at home, not able to work, not able to take care of their families. I think there's a, a balance. I want to acknowledge the, you know, our national leaders and also our state leaders and our local leaders who are making these huge decisions for their constituents and for the nation and really applaud them on moving forward. I, what Sarah said is true. We have to rely on facts and data and, uh, and try to be realistic. 
uh, opening back up slowly. The states that are doing that will set the precedent, I believe, for what you see with the number of cases. Uh, we really don't know uh, how many people are asymptomatic out there. The antibody testing right now is not fully formed. Uh, we don't have good validation yet. So I believe that we just need to take the data and also uh, be sure that we focus our efforts on social distancing. We know we need to still practice that. Hand washing, don't touch your face. You know, be, be realistic with yourself and your family and, and protect others. Listen, thank you so much for sharing all that wisdom with us. Uh, you're all intimately related to the solution uh, here and a lot of patients are counting on you and your creativity and ingenuity to save lives. So thank you on their behalf and certainly on the behalf of Osmosis for joining us in this interview today. Thanks for all that you do. And Rishi, thank you Osmosis for what you've been doing. You've been putting out some really great uh, evidence-based information that is very valuable. So thank you. I appreciate that. I'm Dr. Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.